Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please take out the Word of God and turn in it in the Old Testament to the book of 1 Kings in chapter number 18. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you could take that Bible, turn to page 266, and you would be located at 1 Kings chapter 18. You know, one of the evidences that the Bible is more than a human book is how it portrays our spiritual heroes. You know, they are portrayed as real people. We see them in their weaknesses. We see them with some of the poor choices that they make. We even see them lose spiritual focus in their life. We see our spiritual heroes experience defeat and difficulties, and in some situations, falling into discouragement and despondency and even depression. Think about it. I mean, think about Noah, who by faith prepared the ark which led to the salvation of his household and becoming an heir of righteousness. Yet afterwards, he gets drunk after the flood and is exposed to his sons. Think of Abraham, the one who believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. The one who by faith when God said, you need to travel from this land, he went to a place he didn't even know where he was going, but he believed God. And yet, we know two times When he was asked if Sarah was his wife, he lied about it, denying it to save his own hide. Or how about David, who slew the giant Goliath, who God himself said, he's a man after my own heart, and yet we know that he falls into adultery with Bathsheba and then issues a contract so that Uriah, her husband, might be eliminated from the scene. Or how about Moses? God's great instrument, parting the Red Sea, and so the nation could go through on dry ground. The one who we learn on Mount Sinai spoke face to face with God, and yet you have Moses, who at one point in his life murders an Egyptian in anger, and in another time, in open defiance before the Lord, he strikes a rock in anger. And then we have Elijah. Oh, Elijah, that bold prophet who confronts King Ahab of Israel about their worship of Baal, and then goes face to face with 450 prophets of Baal. What a great hero he is. And yet, immediately afterwards, what do we see of him? We see him fleeing in fear. We see him being overcome in defeat and discouragement. He is despondent and even depressed. You know, this this interesting turn of events from one to the next reminds me of a a program that used to be on in our country from 1961 to 1998. It's called ABC's Wide World of Sports. Anyone ever see that program out there? Yeah. You remember the little theme of it? The thrill of victory, and then what came next? The agony of defeat. That's exactly what we see in Elijah's life. The thrill of victory, and then the agony of defeat. He goes from a spiritual zenith to the spiritual pit. And I have to tell you, I mean, I so love the word of God because it tells us that God understands that we are dust 
He knows we're really nothing more than dust. And yet he cares for us. And he desires to use people like us. I'll never get over that principle and that truth. We're involved in a series of messages we've entitled Ordinary to Extraordinary. This is uh, part number five out of seven. I've entitled the message today, Losing Perspective. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you lost perspective? When was the last time maybe you went from a spiritual high and then you found yourself falling into a spiritual valley? When was the last time you experienced defeat and discouragement when you said, you know what, I'm, I'm really just a spiritual screw-up. I knew better and look at what I've done. And maybe even in that discouragement and defeat, there's some despondency that came in your life and maybe even potentially some depression. Well, whenever the last time was, there's help for us here. There's perspective for us all. If you've been with us on our study, you will know that early on, the story of Elijah moves rather slowly. Now we're coming to a part where it moves bang, bang, boom, boom. And the last time we were together, there was the face-off up on Mount Carmel with the 450 prophets of Baal. And, you know, God blasts down that fire. And, and then, you know, the people, begin to, the people of Israel begin to shout, the Lord is God, Yahweh is Elohim, Yahweh is Elohim, Yahweh is Elohim. And then in 18, uh, chapter 18 and verse 40, we have the prophets slain. And then in 18 and uh, verse 41, we have prayer for rain. The prophets slain, then prayer for rain. And Elijah says to King Ahab, you need to go and get something to eat and drink because I think there's some rain coming. And so Ahab goes to do that and then Elijah goes up to the top of Mount Carmel and he, he uh, crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. He begins to pray, God, would you send the rain that you promised to, to, to send? Pray for that. And then you'll notice in verse 43, he says to his servant as he is praying, go and look toward the sea. Remember when you're up on Mount Carmel, you can see the sea and it's to the west and that's where the storms would come from. And the servant comes back and said, I'm not seeing anything. And then he says, well, I want you to go back. And he keeps praying. And this goes on seven times we have this happening. Have you noticed how God's response to prayer varies? You know, when he's facing the 450 prophets of Baal, he only prays one time. God sent down the fire. Boom, it comes down. God answers immediately. Here, there is not an immediate answer. He goes through praying for it and praying for it and praying for it and praying for it. There's persistence in his prayer. We need to remember that. God doesn't always answer prayer in exactly the same manner. Well, what happens? Verse 44, it came about on the seventh time that he said, Behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And Elijah says, Well, I want you to go tell Ahab, prepare your chariot to go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you. Uh, in other words, you need to beat the storm. There, there's dirt roads. There's going to be a lot of rain. You're going to have trouble in your chariot. And uh, in a little while, the sky grew black with clouds, verse 45, and wind, and there was a heavy shower. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Jezreel was where the summer palace was. And guess who else was waiting in Jezreel? A wife by the name of Jezebel, Right? And so he takes off for Jezreel, and it says in verse 46, 
uh, you know, the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he girded up his loins and he outran Ahab to Jezreel. I mean, Elijah is pumped. In his mind, this has been the big spiritual victory. This is what we were anticipating. There's going to be national revival. I'm so excited that King Ahab was here and he saw it all with his own eyes. And so he girds up his loins, which just simply means he tucked his robe in and he outran Ahab to Jezreel, 20-mile run. Now, literally, it says in the original language, he ran before Ahab. Now, some commentators believe that what he did is he took the role of a servant runner ahead of the king's chariot. And often when you were moving down a mountain or you would be in a stormy situation, there would be a runner, a servant runner, who would go out in front of the chariot, making sure that he could be running on the road so the chariot would know exactly where to go. And so some believe that's what he did. He ran before him all the way down to Jezreel. He had adrenaline going, and the hand of the Lord was on him. Now just freeze frame for a moment. If you didn't know what was coming next, what would you have expected to come next? If you didn't really know, you were thinking it would, might say next in the next verse something like, Elijah rejoiced in the Lord his God. And King Ahab and his wife Jezebel repented. And Elijah began to teach the word of the Lord in Israel. And the people of Israel, they tore down all the altars of Baal. And they rebuilt the altars of Yahweh. And they began to reinstitute the sacrifices that they had not had for many years in the land of Israel. That's what we would have expected to happen. And that's exactly what Elijah expected. And so you have the prophet slain, then you have the prayer for rain, then you have Jezebel guarantees in the first two verses of the next chapter. And you know, remember what Jezebel's assumption had to have been? 450 of her guys against one guy? You know that she knew what was going to happen. My guys are going to win this hands down. Well, Ahab gets back and he tells Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And she is livid. She is filled with rage. And notice what happens. Verse 2. She sends a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of many of them by tomorrow this time. And you know what I think the key word is that he heard in that? The word tomorrow. I got less than a day, and I'm going to be slain just like those 450. And you say, well, why didn't she immediately send out a group of soldiers and arrest him and kill him? Well, sometimes when you do that, that creates a special hero in the community. I think part of her thinking is if I could spook him, then the key one who stands up against Baal will be gone and the people will just crumble. Well, notice his response in verse 3. It says, and he was afraid. Some of the manuscripts say, and he saw. I mean, like he saw the picture clearly. And so you have the prophet slain, the prayer for rain, Jezebel guarantees, and then Elijah flees in verses 3 and 4. He arose, verse 3, and ran for his life. This was a pure emotional reaction. 
Do you notice that there is no prayer, there's no reflection, there's nothing. He just does a forest gump and starts running. He just takes off running. And he runs, it says in verse 3, to Beersheba, 70 more miles. If you look at that map, the, the top box is up where Mount Carmel is. The middle box is where Beersheba is located. And the, it was the southernmost city of, of Israel at the bottom of the Dead Sea. And notice what happens there in verse 3. He leaves his servant there, his comrade. What was he trying to do? Well, he's doing what many of us do in this kind of a situation. He decides, I want to isolate myself. It's a very common tendency when we're discouraged or we've experienced failure or despair in our life. We just go and we isolate ourselves. It's one of the worst choices we can make. And then in verse 4, the run continues. He goes another day's journey into the wilderness. He goes further south. And then look at the rest of verse 4. He eventually comes and he sits down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, it is enough. I've had enough of this stuff. Now, O Lord, take my life for I am not better than my father's. He's just, this is something he never saw coming. It was an outcome he didn't see coming. It was this hard, radical turn. He had an expectation, and it was totally different from that. And he is discouraged, and he's in despair, and he says, I'm not better than my father's. What is he saying? He's saying, I I failed like everybody else. I failed to influence the nation like my predecessors failed to influence the nation. I'm nothing but a failure. I'm nothing but a loser. I'm a failure. I'm a loser. Where do those thoughts emanate from? You know what the enemy likes to whisper in our ear? Failure, loser. Especially when we are emotionally stressed and physically exhausted. That's when he likes to come and start whispering in our ear. It's exactly what he did with Jesus. You remember that? Remember when he came to tempt Jesus in the wilderness? And he did it after Jesus had fasted for 40 days. When Jesus was emotionally stressed and physically exhausted, the enemy was there and he begins to whisper. And we need to remember that when we're discouraged and down and exhausted and stressed, that the voice we begin to hear is the voice of the enemy. We need to be alert to that. We need to recognize that. You know, what he was experiencing here today we would describe as being depressed. Now, I'm not an expert on depression, but I do know what it's like to go into spiritual shock. I do know what it's like to be down and discouraged. I do know, I do know what it's like to be a spiritual screw-up. I really do. And, and those kinds of feelings affect all types of people. It, attacks, it can affect spiritual leaders. It can affect all types of personalities. It doesn't make any difference what your personality type is. Everybody can affect, be affected by these kinds of things. I'm going to read you a quote. You think about who you think might have said it. Here's the quote. I am now the most miserable man living. 
If what I feel were distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on earth. You know, what type of person do you think would say that? Well, the one who said that was Abraham Lincoln, maybe the greatest leader our country ever had. See, such feelings affect all types of people. The preacher of preachers, as he's called, Charles Spurgeon, Many consider him to be the greatest preacher who ever lived in our culture. He struggled with pits of depression on a regular basis. And here's part of what Spurgeon said. He said, the strong are not always vigorous, the wise not always ready, the brave not always courageous, and the joyous not always happy. Now, there are multiple causes that can lead us to being down and despairing. Maybe it's stress and trauma in our life. Maybe it's a painful relationship that's occurred and there's a lot of hurt and that causes us to be down and despairing. Maybe it's just some deep disappointment we're experiencing in life. Maybe some unfulfilled expectation. I thought by now, you know, this would be happening and it's not. Another cause can even be chemical depression where our body chemistry is off. Multiple things can cause us being down and despairing and, and there are certain marks that we display when we're like that. We can, there's, a, there's sadness. There can be hopelessness. There can be a loss of energy. We can be feeling like we're misunderstood and unappreciated. We're, we're unmotivated. I can't seem to want to do anything. We can't think clearly. And then as we see here in Elijah's case, there can be some dark thoughts that come our way. Now, now, there's several different things that can influence this. There's psychological factors, physical factors, spiritual factors, and all of those things can factor in at different levels, and, and they can be related. You know, if we're not doing well physically, sometimes we can have some psychological issues and some spiritual issues. If we're having spiritual problems, it can affect us psychologically and physically. So we don't have all the answers to the concept of somebody being despondent and depressed here, but we do have one case study in front of us, and that is the case study of Elijah, and there are some helpful principles for us here. I've entitled the next section from verses 5 to 18, Elijah and the Lord, Spiritual Graduate School, because that is where God is going to take him. Now, one thing, without any debate, we know is absolutely true of Elijah. He is physically and emotionally exhausted. Think about the adrenaline of this big confrontation with the 450, and then you're running the 20 miles to Jezreel, and then you do another 70, and then you go further, and his adrenaline has been pumping, 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 and when your adrenaline has been pumping, what eventually happens? You have an adrenaline crash. And he's physically and emotionally exhausted. Vince Lombardi, the famous football coach of the Green Bay Packers, once said this. He said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. And that's really true. So the first thing that he really needs is physical rest and refreshment. Physical rest and refreshment. Know what happens. Notice what happens there. In verse 5, he lay down and he slept under that juniper tree. And then, behold, there was an angel touching him. And the angel said to him, Arise, eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a, a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. 
So he ate and he drank and he lay down again. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat. You know, I'm always impressed by what God does not say. You know, through the angel, he does not say to Elijah, hey, get up and pray. That's what you need to do, get up and pray. Or get up and find someone to proclaim the message to. Or get up and start serving the Lord. Come on, get up. No, he says, get up and eat. And notice the heart of God in all this. You know, he's been sleeping for a while, getting some rest and refreshment, and then there's this hot meal there. You know, that that odor of baked goods and the water that's there. It just shows the heart of God and his promise to meet our needs. A guy by the name of Virginia Brazier has written a poem, and it's a poem about life today. And you know, the hectic the hectic life that we have in our culture today and the way we just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. Here's part of what she said in that psalm. She said, this is the age of the half-read page, the quick bash and the mad dash, the bright night with the nerves tight, the brain strain and the heart pain, and the cat naps till the spring snaps. Isn't that a description of the way we tend to live our lives? And at times, men and women, what we really need is some rest and refreshment. Sometimes we just need to sleep. You know, we have four children, and I remember when all of our kids were in the home, and many of them were very, very little, and a lot of times I would come home from work, and my wife would be there, and she would be apologizing to me. She would say, you know, well, such and such didn't get done. I didn't get that cleaned up today. You know, I've been just hassling with the kids and everything and trying to get them down to naps and everything else, and she said, I'm just, I'm exhausted. I'm just totally exhausted. And what I would say to her, and you can ask her, she'll, she'll verify this. I would say to her, Janet, what you need to do is you need to take a nap. You know, when you put them down for a nap, that's when you go down for a nap. But how can I do that, you know, because I got all these... I said, no, you need to take a nap. And she would begin to do that, and she would say, you know what, I, I, I feel refreshed. I feel like I can get some of these things done then. Sometimes we just need some rest and refreshment. We just need some sleep. And sometimes we just need some nourishment. You know, when I, when I was in high school, I, I was a strapping male of 145 pounds, six foot tall. That was impressive, so impressive. You know, there just wasn't a lot of extra stuff, you know, to nourish myself with when I wasn't eating. And so what, what I noticed is I would get hungry. When I get hungry, I was just so famished. And it began to infect my attitude. I would get so grumpy, so snappy. It still happens sometimes. And what I really need to do then is I just need to eat well. You see, sometimes we just need some rest and refreshment. We just need some sleep, or we just need some nourishment. Isn't it encouraging that the Lord knows us? He knows all that. He knows at times we need rest and refreshment. I mean, think about it. Look look at the economy that he laid out. You are to work for six days, and then on the seventh day, what happens? Some rest. What's he communicating? It's important to have some downtime. It's important to have some rest and refreshment. Jesus taught the same thing to the disciples. 
You know, in Mark chapter 6, you might remember there, he begins to send them out in pairs to do ministry. You remember that? He sends them out two by two to do ministry. And so they're doing intense ministry. They're proclaiming the message of the kingdom. They are healing people. They're casting out demons. And, and, and they're, they're seeing so many people that, that many of them were not able to, able to eat at all. And Jesus, when they all come back, he says to them in chapter 6, verse 31, here's what I want you to do. Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. Sometimes we need rest and refreshment. Vance Havner, I love the way he worded this. He said, if we do not come apart and rest a while, we will simply come apart. It's so true. You know, as we told you, we're going to be headed off to Louisville to speak at the Family Life Marriage Getaway this next weekend. And, you know, it's an intense time. We start traveling on Thursday. Uh, with the actual, there's a lot of preparation we have to do beforehand. Then the speaking is uh, all on Friday night. Then it's all Saturday morning. It's all Saturday afternoon. Set aside Saturday evening for the, for the couples to have a little bit of a date night. And then we go again all Sunday morning all the way till about 1230 in the afternoon. And it's a draining time. I mean, your adrenaline's pumping. You're talking to these people. You're interacting with them after sessions and everything. And it can be draining, and we've learned that we need to schedule a break, a little bit of time to rest and recharge. That's why even on this prayer sheet, there's a, there's a little section here about prayer post-getaway, you know, avoiding the post-game blahs. There's, we've learned that. There's just some of that. There's just that crash that can happen. And so we need to remember that we need to have some rest. By the way, more coffee and more energy drinks cannot compensate or our need for rest. We try to pull that off, but it doesn't compensate for it. And there needs to be some planned rest and recreation and refreshment in our life. By the way, this is vital. I don't know if you schedule that, but you need to. You need to schedule some planned rest time and some recreation time and some refreshment time. It is vital to living the spiritual life. And although it may not be the major cause of, of, of depression, Physical rest and refreshment is a great place to start. I don't know where I first heard it. I really don't remember. I don't know if it was from my parents or from somebody else. But I remember people were saying, you know, when things really look bad, go ahead and, and get your night's rest because things will look better in the morning. You ever heard that one? And you know what I, I learned? I said, that's largely true. It doesn't mean everything goes away by the next morning. But when you've had a night of rest, things just look better than they did the night before. Well, in verses 8 and 9, he takes off again, and it says he travels to Horeb, which is called the mountain of God, not a mountain of God, but the mountain of God. This is where he goes down further. That's that last box that you see there. He goes down to the very tip of the Sinai Peninsula. He's in the Arabian Desert. He's actually in the area where Israel wandered in the wilderness. And he goes to Mount Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai. What happened on Mount Sinai? Moses met face to face with the Lord on Mount Sinai. And that's what Mount Horeb is, same place. And it appears to me that he's just desperate to meet with God. I'm going to go where God talked face to face with Moses. And what does he do in verse 9? He goes there to a cave and he lodges there. I'm going to find a dark place dingy place, and I'm just going to hole up there. 
Isn't that the way we work when we, when we feel some despondency? I want to get in the dark for a while. And then you have an interesting question that God asks. The Lord came to him, verse 9, and he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? You know, and you know it's true of all the questions that God gives. He already knows the answer. He already knows that his last direction he had given to Elijah was, I want you to go talk to Ahab. What are you doing here, Elijah? And notice his response in, in verse 10. He says, well, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with a sword. And all that was totally true. But then what happens in the rest of the verse tells us that he had lost perspective. He said, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. You know, when we find ourselves in a little bit of darkness and a little bit of despair and despondency, when we're, when we're discouraged, the key question to ask ourselves is, where are my eyes? Where are my eyes? Are they riveted on the circumstances? Are they fixed inwardly on myself? Where are my eyes? eyes. He, he is so fixed on the circumstances and riveted on himself, he's having a little pity party. Someone has said this, self-pity is the enemy of all spiritual growth. What a great quote. Self-pity is the enemy of all spiritual growth. Now, the thing we need to do when we find ourselves discouraged like this is we need to readjust our focus where our eyes are. And what he needed was fresh perspective from the Lord. Do you notice again what God does not say to him as he says all these things? And part of it is true and part of it isn't. You notice that God doesn't ridicule him and condemn him. He doesn't say, Elijah, you're an idiot. Elijah, would you snap out of it? Elijah, you know what? You're a failure. You're a loser. You make me sick. Get out of my... He doesn't say any of that. Remember Psalm 103, 14. He knows we are but dust. And what we see out of the Lord here is tenderness and compassion. God is really saying to him, Elijah, come over here. I want to show you something. I want to show you something. And so what happens there in verse 11? It says, the Lord was passing by on the mountain and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of gentle blowing. There is this great wind. We call it in Oklahoma a tornado. It's just ripping the mountain apart. God's not there. There's the earthquake then. And then there's the fire, like the fires that you might see in California. All these spectacular things. But where was the Lord? He wasn't in those things. He was in the gentle breeze. In the quiet of every day, he's always right 
there. We talked about Psalm 46 earlier in our worship service. Verse 10, be still, Elijah, and know that I am God. Psalm 42, 5. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. Change your focal points. Get your eyes off of the circumstances, eyes off of yourself. See, when our focus is on the circumstances and ourself, we sink faster. And depression distorts reality. I mean, think about it. He'd lost perspective. He'd lost sight of what God did at the brook Cherith. You know how the ravens came and and fed. He he lost sight of what God did at Zarephath, providing supernaturally and, and raising a boy from the dead. He even lost sight of what happened on Mount Carmel when 450 are defeated soundly by the Lord. And God is just kind of gently saying to him, be still and know that I am God. Put your hope in God, Elijah. And then we have verses 15 to 18. The Lord says to him, Go return your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Haziel king over Aram. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place, and it shall come about the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel, Jehu shall put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel and all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. The third thing that was going to be helpful to him at this point was to resume serving God and others. Physical rest and refreshment, readjusting our focus, and then resuming serving God and others. He was saying to Elijah, hey, 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 it doesn't all depend on you. I'm going to use other people. I'm going to use Jehu, who, by the way, we learned from 2 Kings 9, is the one who leads in the demise of Jezebel. Elisha, I'm going to have him succeed you. He's really saying to him, listen, you never were alone. You never will be alone. I'm with you. The Lord of hosts is with you. And 7,000 others are with you. And I'm always taken with the words in verse 19 in the front part of it. So Elijah departed from there. Perhaps you're, you're, you're here and you have been hit with a financial or medical turn that was just a turn you never saw coming and you're You're in despair and discouragement about that. Maybe you're a parent who's poured your heart into your children, and as they've gotten older, they've turned a cold shoulder to you. Maybe you gave your heart and soul to your marriage, and your spouse walked away or is threatening to walk away. Maybe you have faithfully given yourself to your job, and then you've been released from that. Or maybe your friends have just seemingly turned away from you, and and you don't understand what's going on, and there's emotions that come. We're down. We're discouraged. We're defeated. There's some spiritual shock We feel like a failure. We feel misunderstood and and unmotivated. What do we need? Some rest and refreshment. What do we need to do? Readjust our focus. Get it off the circumstances and the situation. You know what we tend to do when we're on the circumstances and the situation? We just mentally replay that over and over again. It's toxic to do that. Readjust our focus. Shift 
to the fact that the Lord is always there. Be still and know that I am God. Put your hope in the Lord. He's there. He cares. He is on your side. And then we need to resume serving God and others. See, when we start focusing on others, we lose that self-orientation. I've learned that over the years. Sometimes the best way to draw me out of that is just to begin to serve other people. I want you to know, by the way, this is not an instantaneous thing. It's not just boom, it's all over. It's a process. But when we do those things, we will find again, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.24, the one who calls you is faithful. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for this living book. We thank you for the the lesson of the life of Elijah. We thank you that you understand that we're just dust. We're human. And yet you're so caring and you're so tender. And you want us to understand these principles so that we don't have to become a prisoner of some of the events of our life. And then, Father, we need to be reminded at all times, at all times, that the one who calls you, the one who calls you is faithful. We thank you for that. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 